Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. Well, that's this, and this is me, and we are here, and we are steadfast just hurtling through this semester here at Utah Tech University and through, I should add, this season uh, on which we've been talking mostly about health and the body and the interplay that exists between the body, health, and of course, relationships, because this is a podcast about communication and relationships. We've spent the last week or so talking about uh womanhood and the experiences of womanhood and sort of the non-traditional manifestations of that. And I want to continue that conversation in a slightly more specific way. Um, Specifically, I want to talk about motherhood. And to help me do that is a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Sarah Jones. Sarah, thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really jazzed to be included in this esteemed group of experts you've had on. <laughs> anytime, anytime. And, and by the way, I, I should mention, Sarah is yet another Arizona State University graduate. I am uh, really getting to the bottom of my list in terms of people <laughs> who I can include on this show, who I went to grad school with. Uh, there's still a couple more, though, so we'll see if we can't mm-hmm. get creative. Sarah, can you talk a little bit just to start us off here about like who you are, what your uh, research platform is, and sort of where you find yourself in some of the discussions on communication. Sure. Yeah, I think about how I got here, and my mind kind of drifts back to 2009, 2010-ish, right? I'm an, I'm an 18-year-old college student. I'm at the University of Kentucky. I'm an undecided major. I'm enrolled in my first communication theory course, no idea what the hell I was getting myself into. And I was introduced to these theories about the construction of meaning that like fundamentally changed the way I understood what could and should be. So like the idea that some groups have less power because there's no language to describe their experience. For example, I was just totally wrapped. So after earning my bachelor's and master's degrees in communication studies at UK, I did my PhD at Arizona State University, where we met, mm-hmm. um, specializing in organizational communication and gender studies and, and qualitative research methods. And so now in my research as an assistant professor at Ohio University, I sort of explore what I kind of phrase as like the power and politics of gender in organizations. So how does it affect the way that we see the world? Um, the way we see ourselves, how we create policies, how resources are distributed. And I study these communication processes because I'm really, really passionate about cultivating equitable and inclusive organizations, especially ones that deal with the body. Um, And I think those dynamics are really vivid in my research on milk banking or breast milk donation and exchange. And that kind of also ropes in these discussions of maternal identity and stigma and women's health and the politics of choice. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That was very succinct. And I hopefully that uh, provides a nice basis for what we're going to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Now, in our last episode, we were talking about the experience of womanhood, but what we had not yet done is 
explored the tangible outcomes of womanhood. And although, of course, motherhood is one of many, many different tangible outcomes uh, related to womanhood, it is what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm wondering if you can spend a little bit of time unpacking the sort of social tie that exists between the experience of womanhood and the experience of motherhood as informed by, you know, your ontological approach. Right. Yeah. I appreciate the way you phrase that, like motherhood being one Mm -hmm. such outcome. And that's something I discussed a little bit in my interview earlier this year on the Defining Moments podcast from WOUB, which is our local NPR member station here. So the social tie, as you phrased it, between womanhood and motherhood is a very patriarchal one. It's also in many ways invisible. And this all has to do with how social structures shape our ability to choose. So this is what's often referred to as the, quote, seduction of choice when social structures shape our ability to choose by creating what we might call in communication studies a a natural performative context that then frames our perceptions of our interests, which constrains our choices. For example, the expectation that a woman will become a mother is so pervasive, it's misconstrued as absent. That tie between womanhood and motherhood isn't so much framed as a choice. It's it's an innocuous certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, historians have also pointed out that right institutions have depended on us doing gender in particular ways. So case in point, the institution of marriage or the institution of family has depended on women doing gender in particular ways, becoming a mother, for example. So even in acts of resistance, like when a woman carefully and confidently determines that she doesn't want children, those structures act back upon us. We are told we are the epitome of selfish, that we will change our mind, that we will never experience real joy or true love unless we have a child or that we will die alone because there's no one to take care of us when we're old. And that's one explanation for why it's hard for folks, I think, to reconcile the severing of that social tie Mm. between womanhood and motherhood. Like why folks like myself who've chosen a child-free life receive so much pushback because we as a society, we default, frankly, to parenting as the standard and the assumption. Like even the way that we compliment young women is grounded in the explicit assumption, excuse me, that she will be, not she might be. Mm. So it's you would make a great mother, not you're a really nurturing soul. Mm. So like we don't we don't ever stop to consider that the person we're complimenting might have zero desire to ever be a mother. And we also don't stop to consider that the person that we're complimenting might deeply desire motherhood, but they've experienced unfathomable loss or they're unable to have a child. Mm. So this social tie between womanhood and motherhood is so precarious. It's something I think about often, Mm. like how we rarely acknowledge that choosing to have a child is in many ways a much bigger decision than choosing to not have one. So there's a reason that I use the term child free as opposed to child less when discussing that, that social tie or the severing of that for me. So like child free emphasizes that shift, that rhetorical shift from a deficit perspective to one that honors this choice to not have children in a much more positive way. And so that's one of the things that 
I strive to communicate is that you can be fulfilled without wanting children while simultaneously adoring and supporting and championing those who do. Yeah, I, I, you make a, a lot of good points there. I want to take out two of them real quick and just further mm -hmm. extrapolate. The first one is uh, when you are talking about the extent to which uh, we choose our words, like, for example, when we're complimenting someone and we tell them, you know, oh, you'd make mm -hmm. a great mother as opposed to, oh, you're so good at nurturing. Um, mm -hmm. Folks who listen, you might want to go back to our last episode to listen to the ways in which we un or attempted to <laughs> untether uh, womanhood from femininity and from like biology because nurturing is an obviously feminine behavior, but it is not a behavior that is beholden only to women unless we make it one. Like unless we per create norms that dictate that only women should be nurturing. And that's how I think you get to the, the point where even a compliment is in many yeah. ways, uh, um, you know, constricting. Uh, and then the other yeah. thing, the other thing that I want to say is we've talked about like bioevolutionary mechanisms here on this show before, mostly with uh, Dr. Corey Floyd. I I think it's really important to mention that when you talk about being child free versus childless, a lot of folks who put that pressure on women to produce children will also talk about like the bioevolutionary need to reproduce. And it's important to remember that humans as a species have that superordinate goal, but no any one human is inherently uh, uh, forced or inherently desires to have kids. It is a species goal, not an individual goal. So that separation is, is, is very important there. Yeah, those are yeah, those are really important connections, I think, to the other work you've discussed on the show. The only thing I would slightly push back on is um, the phrasing that um, nurturing is an obviously feminine characteristic. And I think mm -hmm. that word obviously is doing a lot of work there, right? It is one that we societally have socially constructed to be a core element of mm -hmm. femininity. And so it is seen as this very natural sort of pairing. Um, but why do we limit, right, that specifically to femininity mm. and not other gendered spaces. So there's right. some there's some emphasis to be talked about there. No, that's a good point. And I, I think, for example, uh, the masculine, quote, side of that would be like protecting, mm -hmm. right? Or you're a protector. Um, and I think it's important to remember that you can protect by nurturing. Like the, those two things do not have to be mutually exclusive. So, uh, you know, you are right in uh, addressing the sort of the gradient that exists between masculine mm -hmm. and feminine behaviors in that overlap. Um, you kind of breezed right through my second question um, <laughs> by by sort of talking about the ways in which um, we see uh, 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 like uh, the manifestation of of childhood as the ultimate goal that that uh, you know a woman can achieve, right? So like, oh yeah, if, oh, you're, if you're if you're not a yeah, if you're not a mother, you are therefore somehow less of a woman, which is inherently problematic. Um, mm -hmm. I want to shift over to kind of the big elephant in the room, the big I mean, issue I, I at can, hand. I can say more on that second question. Maybe if we have more time, but I re I, I feel yeah. like okay. we're going to need a moment here to unpack what, what I'm going to bring up next. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Roe v. Wade. Uh, now, <laughs> the individuals who support the overturning of Roe v. Wade often mm -hmm. note 
the importance of motherhood and the importance of the life of the child. So I, I wonder if we can take some time to just sort of break down perhaps the undiscussed elements, like the more negative implications of that sort of forced motherhood and how the concept of motherhood in general changes or maybe doesn't change in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Yeah, this is a this is a big one. That's why I wanted to leave time. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'll I'll clarify that while the Dobbs decision, while while the overturning of Roe v. Wade isn't yet a core part of my ongoing research studies, it is proximal, given that my work mm. touches on politics of choice and and conversations around reproductive justice. But I, I draw on a lot of other scholars here when I kind of talk about this. But I, but I digress. Mm. So these these negative implications of forced motherhood are many. And I think a good way to enumerate these is with the idea of what Burke and other scholars like DeFrancisco and Palchuski call terministic screens. So this is the idea that all communication is persuasive because even if any given terminology is a reflection of reality, by its very nature, a terminology must is also a selection of reality. And to this extent, it must function also as a deflection of reality. So like the terms survivor versus victim or fetus versus baby, each term selects, deflects, and reflects reality in a particular way. And it calls forth different clusters of terms that accompany it. Mm. Um, and DeFrancisco and Balchewski have, have written about this, right? In their book, um, Communicating Gender Diversity, for example, they talk about how the term baby selects a particular type of relationship to other human beings. Um, baby also calls forth positive associations because U.S. culture is pronatal. It celebrates mm -hmm. the arrival of babies. Um, and in the process of selecting some parts of reality to highlight, the term baby also deflects part of reality. It deflects that reality. Um, it deflects, excuse me, that the reality is located within um, the person's body, or as we're talking right now, the woman's body, right? Um, mm -hmm. It deflects the possibility that women can be something other than mothers. Um, it also deflects the fact that people recognize stages in development in the human as it undergoes gestation. So the term motherhood is also kind of its own terministic screen, right? Like it's a, it selects and deflects and reflects reality in a very particular way, particularly as it relates to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, like the way in which the term motherhood has been wielded in that deflects, for example, the existence of bodily autonomy or bodily integrity. And by that, we mean there is there is no situation under U.S. law where an individual is legally obligated to lend their body or their organs for the sake of another life without express and ongoing consent. Mm -hmm. So bodily integrity is prioritized by law even after death. It's illegal to take organs from a deceased yeah. person's body without permission. So, so many gender scholars and activists alike have argued that these vitriolic arguments that we get into about whether or not a fetus has a soul, for example, don't matter in the end in a way because what they are doing is distracting from say the actual process of pregnancy and the fact that it is not a health neutral event like we often talk about it it changes the pregnant person's body forever regardless of whether the pregnancy is high risk or not like there are innumerable mm -hmm. complications that could arise during pregnancy during birth and postpartum not to mention 
the financial cost of pregnancy and birth, oh, yeah. the income disruption, and and the ever rising rates of maternal mortality in the U.S., which is so much worse for minoritized communities like Black women, for example. So all that to say, this concept of motherhood. In the wake of the Dobbs decision, it changes immensely because it wrenches that social tie between womanhood and motherhood that we talked about earlier, that that choice about whether or not to have children. It's almost beyond repair. Um, but the truth of the matter is, and here I'm, I'm drawing on um, licensed professional clinical counselor Tawny George, who's written that for many people who support the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that quick, painless termination of potential life is more unsavory than the slow, painful suffering and demise of life outside the womb. And we have to reckon with that. Um, one resource that I, I would recommend for your listeners is board certified OBGYN, Dr. Danielle Jones, and not just because we share a last name, um, she says, <laughs> She does a ton of reproductive health education on social media under the handle Mama Dr. Jones. And mm. she has an excellent video on this topic where she discusses Roe v. Wade, what it protects, and and what an overturn of abortion protection means for the state of health and autonomy in pregnancy. And one of the things that she's clarified when it comes to our conversations around the concept of motherhood is that it's important that we stop with the the knee-jerk reactionary outrage responses that center ourselves and take a second to reflect on how wild it is to pretend that how we feel about our own wanted pregnancies is not more valid mm -hmm. than how someone else feels about their own wanted or unwanted pregnancy. That when we educate and make policy, it is our obligation, it should be our conviction to rely on medical science not feelings. And that medical science is articulated in really accessible detail in her work. Yeah. And I just always found it especially interesting that you'll note that the states that have the most access to things like sex education, healthcare services, of which a small portion involve, of course, abortions. Uh, those are the, the the spaces, the states, the cities that experience the lowest rate of abortions. And I think that one of the ways in which we can um, reconceptualize the discussion on abortion is to acknowledge that I don't think anybody is like gleefully excited about you know, large number of abortions. Like what we want to do is we want a, a world where every pregnancy is wanted. I think pretty much everybody wants that. That is of course not our reality. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, crafting a situation that allows for the autonomy of the individual, um, who has the capacity to get pregnant is mm -hmm. extremely, uh, extremely important. Um, and you know, <laughs> that, I guess that's just me on my soapbox for a moment here. But yeah. no, I, I yeah, that's a that's a very valuable resource, and I appreciate you um, sharing it. One thing you said in your response that really resonated with me, and that is a perfect transition into the last thing that I want to talk about, is the extent to which there is this mounting uh, uh, hegemonic, so like silent, unquestioned pressure on mm -hmm. uh, many women and mothers uh, to be only mothers, right? Mm. To to only have the right to that be the the defining characteristic of their existence. And so I just thought we could end by perhaps talking about some of the other roles and or relationships that um, people, uh, women specifically with children can embrace and how we might be able to kind of tilt society away from that monolithic view of mothers. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that monolithic view is a, is a good way to put it. And that, just to tie back a little bit to what we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. is an outcome of what we would call pronatalism. So literally meaning pro-birth. So that refers to the, the policy or the practice of encouraging people to have children and advocating for an increased birth rate or generally adhering to arguments about desirability for a larger population. And one of the ways that that shows up in our speech is when we position this, as you were talking about, womanhood is inextricably linked with motherhood. And those discourses are so pervasive. Um, And so as we think about this you know, final question about how can we kind of tilt away from that? You know, some of that ties into issues of representation. Um, some of that ties into issues of deconstruction. So critically interrogating um, our own gender performance and our expectations or or judgments of others and allowing ourselves to have um, a more compassionate and flexible approach to the way in which we do gender and the roles that exist for us and around us, going back to what we were talking about with with nurturing earlier and responding to that sort of hegemonic uh, pressure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it strikes me that there are so many different roles that uh, mothers often take on within right. the capacity of being a mother. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I think it's okay to be a mother and to have that portion of your life contribute to your role as as a caregiver, as a sports mm-hmm. fan, right? Like, I'm picturing, like, somebody who uh, right. produces a child, and the child is super into baseball. And so right. now mom is also a baseball fanatic, right? And I feel like that's often mm-hmm. foregone. Like, it's just a foregone conclusion of, like, of course mom is going to support the child in their athletic endeavors. And I feel like uh, the portion, at least in this example, that's missing is that, like, we're talking about, like, learning um, a, a new language for some people. Yeah. The, the language of sport, if you will. Uh, and, and for others who are already a sports fan, we're talking about sharing a portion of your identity that is not inherently linked to motherhood with your child. And and like just those little things like that, those little acknowledgements uh, might be able to help shift the rhetoric in a way that, again, uh, avoids that monolithic approach, which is we don't want to view anyone as a single entity, right? Right. And, and, you know, I mean, we can take this to a level of, you know, societal critique, um, like, uh, Becky Vera is a, a writer who's written for a lot of parenting outlets. And I remember she tweeted last year, society started referring to moms as superheroes because it was easier to sit back and let us do everything <laughs> while making it seem like a compliment rather than taking things off our plates or mm. actually stepping in and helping us. And a number of parenting publications have written about this. Siobhan Adcock, writing for Motherly, has talked about how, you know, moms don't need empty congratulations on how well we're handling this. We need real systemic support. And support means things like funding childcare providers and schools. It means equal pay for equal work. It means acknowledging the mental workload. It means partners actually stepping up and doing their share, not just what they think is their share. It Mm. means flexibility from employers, especially for single working mothers. It Mm -hmm. means extending economic benefits to families that needs them. Basically, it's more than the heart eyes emoji. Like (laughs) we need to allow ourselves to complicate our understanding and, and representations of what motherhood is and can be. And we bear community responsibility for that. 
right? So that is also something that it is important for me to do even in my own mental spaces and capacities because it impacts my relationships with other people who are parents and who greatly desire to be parents. Um, you know, there's something, there's something hypocritical about praising people for their resilience in the face of problems we ourselves are unwilling to solve. Mm. And so that's where I think it ties back to being a community issue and conversation. Yeah, I, I think that at, like many of the problems that we unpack on this show, there's a an inherent individualism that contributes to the problem that, like you said, we kind of refuse to solve. Or we, 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 it's not that we refuse to solve it. We, we allow it to continue existing despite having the resources and mechanisms to prevent it from happening in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that, of course, that is that's manifests in many ways in, in, in the case of uh, abortion rights. Um, wow. I can't believe that we went through all that so quickly. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, I, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute delight. Thank you. I appreciate it, James. This was a real pleasure. I'm glad to hear it. Well, we are almost done with this semester's season, but we do have two very important episodes coming up to close things off. We are first going to be talking about the role that mental health plays in close relationships. And then we're just going to talk about like what it means to have a quote unquote healthy relationship. And that's how we'll end our discussion as we proceed through the month of November. But until then, this and the, the conversations leading up to it have been very fruitful, would not be able to tackle these issues without my wonderful guests. So again, thank you for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate your time and effort. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I should also say thanks to all the mothers out there, right? We got to We got to We got to thank them. It's not Mother's Day, but we're getting there. All right. Two more episodes to go on this season. But until then, I'll catch you all next time. Take care. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.